Hello, everyone. Welcome to Lost Ladies of Lit, the podcast dedicated to dusting off forgotten women writers. I'm Amy Helms. And I'm Kim Askew. And actually, dusty is the operative word today because we're going to be discussing Rosamond Lehman's debut novel, Dusty Answer. It's a book that caused quite a scandal in its day and had lovelorn ladies of the world feeling seen. Dusty Answer was ridiculously popular, you guys, when it was published in 1927, but it also had its fair share of vocal detractors. The book was seen as having a corrupting influence on young people, and Lehman herself said that it was discussed and reviewed as if it was the outpourings of a sex maniac. (laughs) Honestly, that's the best sales pitch ever. I mean, come on. Yes. Right. But there's really so much more to this book than just the naughty bits, as you might say, which frankly, by today's standards are, you can imagine, pretty tame. At the time, a reviewer for the New York Herald Tribune said Dusty Answer gave him more pleasure than the work of any living English novelist, save Virginia Woolf, George Moore and E.M. Forrester. And the distinguished poet and critic Alfred Noyes, in a review of the book for the Sunday Times, wrote, It is the kind of novel that might have been written by Keats if Keats had been a young novelist of today. Wow, that's high praise. And I think actually in a lot of ways accurate. And speaking of high praise, we've got a guest today whom Amy and I greatly admire, and we cannot wait to introduce her. So let's raid the stacks and get started. Okay, so if Amy and I are the incoming freshmen in the pursuit of forgotten women writers, our guest today, Lucy Scholes, is the totally cool senior that we hope will talk to us in the hallway. (laughs) Yeah, that's a perfect uh, metaphor right now because we're recording this basically right around back to school time. So we definitely had a we're not worthy moment when she agreed to join us for this episode. Lucy is a London-based critic who writes for the Times Literary Supplement, The Observer, The Financial Times, The New York Review of Books, and Literary Hub, among others. But this is the coolest part. She also exhumes out-of-print and forgotten books for her monthly Recovered column in the Paris Review. Yes, we are huge fans of her column. And in addition to all that, she hosts Our Shelves. It's the official podcast of our favorite Virago books. Every two weeks, you can find Lucy interviewing big names in the literary world, talking to them about their own favorite books, music, TV shows, and more. We highly recommend you go check out that podcast. But today, Lucy gets to be on the other side of the interview table, and we are so excited to talk with her about Rosamund Lehman. Lucy, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm having my own I am not worthy now moment after such a generous introduction. So thank you. It's great to be here. You suggested we tackle Dusty Answer today, which was perfect, Lucy, because Amy and I hadn't ever read it. When and how did you first discover it, and what was your response to it? Well, I think Dusty Answer was the first of Rosamund Lehman's novels that I read, which is apt considering it was her debut. Um, And I came across it first as an undergraduate quite a long time ago now. I won't say exactly how many years, but um, I remember being assigned it for a particular class that I was taking. And it was honestly like, no other novel I think I'd read in an academic context at that stage. I mean, I'd read novels which I enjoyed and admired and, you know, spent hours analysing. But I had what I can only describe as quite a visceral response to Dusty Answer, that I just sort of fell in love with it. The same way that maybe I'd fallen in love with certain books as a teenager or as a young adult, you know, reading them as a child. 
And I just can't really describe it any other way. I fell in love with this book. But at the same time, I think I was quite fascinated by the way that Lehman plays with ideas of fantasy and desire in the text. So there was something else there going on beneath the surface. And I know that it's one of her books that is beloved by many of her readers, but also there are some Lehman fans who do think of it as being her sort of juvenile work, you know, because it was the first novel, that it's overly romantic. And actually, I think there's something that's quite clever there beneath the surface that not everyone sees. I love it. And I can't wait to get into it more with you. So Rosamond Lehman was born at home in the village of Bourne End in Buckinghamshire, England in 1901. And she was born in the midst of a thunderstorm, no less. Her mother, Alice, was an American who hailed from New England. She met and fell for Rosamond's father, an Englishman named Rudolph, when he was visiting the States. Rudy, as he was known, was a world-class authority on rowing. That was his number one passion in life. But he also worked as a newspaper editor, and he wrote these whimsical poems like An Ode to the Brussels Sprout for Punch Magazine. He also was a member of Parliament for four years. An ode to the Brussels sprout. He sounds like a fun guy. And based on some of the anecdotes I read, he sounds like he was a super fun dad, like really creative, kind of whimsical. But I think he could also be temperamental. So kind of ran hot and cold with his own family. That said, he was really instrumental in encouraging and critiquing Rosamond's writing when she was a child. Yeah. And actually, he had portraits of Wilkie Collins and Robert Browning in his library that were painted by his great uncle. His own parents hobnobbed with a number of literary greats, including Charles Dickens. And as a little girl, Rosamond, or Rosie as she was then called, was introduced to Georgina Hogarth, that was Dickens' sister-in-law. So we're going to be explaining a bit more about Layman's life as we go along in this episode. But I think her novel is a helpful tool in getting to know her. So let's just pivot to that. Lucy, of course, we give this hard part to our guests. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Would you mind giving our listeners a quick spoiler-free rundown of what Dusty Answer is about? Uh, yes. Well, it's uh, a buildings romance. It's a story of youthful disillusionment and doomed first love. Our heroine is Judith Earle. She's an only child who's raised in relative luxury but isolation in a large house on the river in the English countryside. And her otherwise solitary childhood is punctuated by visits from the five Fife cousins, uh, four boys and a girl, or as Lehman puts it, mysterious and thrilling children who came and went and were all cousins except two who were brothers and all boys except one who was a girl and who dropped over the peach tree wall into Judas Garden with invitations to tea and hide and seek. So the Fife's grandmother lives in the house next door to Judas, and um, they're there most every holiday uh, come to stay with her. And Judas completely enchanted by these other children. Some might even describe her as obsessed with them. And they occupy both her fantasies and as she grows up, increasingly her reality too, as she becomes entangled with each of them in turn. And the book is broken down into five parts. The first deals with memories of her childhood. In the second part, she's now 18, and the cousins have returned to the house next door after a few years during which they didn't visit, so she's very excited about their return. The third part then concerns Judith's three years as a student at Cambridge, and the fourth part then covers her relationships with the Fife's. Now they're all grown um, young adults, I suppose, at this point. And then the fifth part of the novel provides a sort of summing up as Judith now embarks on life as an adult, older and perhaps we might say a little wiser too. That was great. And Dusty Answer is actually autobiographical to an extent. Lucy, can you shed a little light on that bit, especially as it relates to part one of the book? Where do things line up when comparing Layman's earlier life and that of her heroine, Judith? 
Well, I think Judith's childhood clearly draws on Lehman's own. Um, so the big house by the river is very much like Fieldhead, the house in Buckinghamshire where Lehman enjoyed her childhood. And there was lots of outdoor activities, swimming and rowing on the river. And her biographer, Selina Hastings, describes this house as a paradise for children. And this is something that Lehman later looked back on with nostalgia as a sort of lost Eden, I think. And this explains the potency of this first section of the novel. And indeed, after reading the novel, one of Lehman's sisters, uh, Helen, wrote to Rosamond declaring all the dear dead things of our childhood carried in that first part had touched me beyond words. So there's clearly a lot of truth there in terms of what their childhood was like. There was also a particular family who lived close by, the Desboroughs, um, in a large house called Taplow Court. And these looked to have loosely inspired the fictional fiefs slightly. But most importantly, one of the big differences is that Lehman was not an only child like Judith, but she did idolise her father in a way that's quite reminiscent of Judith's own relationship with her father in the book, who's also a writer. Um, though I think it's probably worth mentioning that the parental figures in Dusty Answer, both Judith's and um, those of the cousins next door, they are sort of wispy, barely there figures. They drift in and out of the story, but they don't figure in a particularly important way. Um, and in this, Dusty Answer always makes me think about sort of wonderful childhood books, you know, books for children in which parents are often kind of relegated to the sidelines of the story. You know, they don't play a big role in the kid's imagination, therefore they don't play a big role in the novel itself. Um, and there's certainly a feeling of that here. Right, that fairy tale element, or the Disney movie where you never see the parents. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And that ties into sort of the tone of the book also, because, you know, the words that kept springing to mind for me as I read it were pastoral, enchanted, halcyon you know there's just sort of this vibe that it's a magical place it's a it's a magical other world especially this childhood section yeah I agree it absolutely has that feel and I think for me I love in particular how the beauty of the cousins and the way that Judith describes them somehow becomes just a sort of another element of the beauty of this idyllic rural landscape um, I have a little section to read here if I may um, this is from the first part it was the autumn, and soon the lawn had a chill, smoke-blue mist on it. All the blurred, heavy garden was as still as glass, bowed down, folded up into itself, deaf, dumb, and blind with secrets. Under the mist, the silky river lay flat and flawless, wanely shining. All the colours of sky and earth were thin ghosts of themselves, and on the air were the troubling, bittersweet odours of decay. When the children came from hiding in the bushes, they looked all damp and tender, the delicate glow in their faces and wet lashes and drops of wet on their hair. Their breath made mist in front of them. They were beautiful and mysterious like the evening. That's gorgeous. It's so beautiful. And it also makes me think of, you know, that very famous line of Keats as uh, to autumn, you know, seasons of mists and mellow fruitfulness. And obviously that seems particularly apt, I think, because you mentioned um, the Sunday Times review of the novel that, that, you know, quoted at the beginning of the show, talking about how it could have been written by Keats. Exactly. Dreams factor into the book quite often too. Judith will sort of drift off into these imaginary reveries, which I really loved. And I know Amy did too. What did you make of that? I think for me, Judith's imagination is absolutely central to the story. So our first sort of conception of the Fife cousins has very little to do with their real life identities. We see them as Judith sees them, these people who have taken on this sort of larger than life role in her imagination. And if I can quote briefly from the novels, I think that sums it up better. She said, in the long spaces of being alone, which they only rarer and rarer intervals broke, she had turned them over, fingered them so lovingly, explored them so curiously 
that melting into the darkly shining enchanted shadow stuff of remembered childhood, they had become well-nigh fantastic creatures. And she's created this whole world in which she adores them all. You know, she wants them to adore her and she's sort of fallen in love with Charlie, the oldest boy, this beautiful golden-haired child who she dreams of sort of lying in bed with at night and mopping his fevered brow when he's sick. And it's She has such a wild imagination. It really carries her through. And I think this is something that's, you know, I guess a lot of lonely single children do this. You know, if you're an only child with not many people around and she doesn't really have any other friends, you know, and so she's had to rely on her imagination and she's become a sort of hopeless romantic. It's all entangled. And at the same time, you know, she's very awkward and shy around them. She finds them to be completely spellbinding. She thinks they exist on this higher plane of perfection, basically. And it kind of reminded me a little bit of Donna Tartt's The Secret History. You know, the the cool kids that are in that book, these like beautiful, perfect young people. But despite Judith's feeling like an awkward fangirl around this clique of cousins, Lehman writes, one day they would all like her better than anyone else. Even Roddy would tell her everything. Their lives, instead of being always remote and mysterious, would revolve intimately around her. She would know all, all about them. So you're like, ooh, how's this going to work? You know, like, what is this change that's going to happen? She has really unique bonds with each of the cousins. The cousins are all very distinct in their own ways. And so, as you said, she kind of loves them collectively in a sort of way. She's obsessed with them as a group. But you're also, as a reader, starting to wonder which one of these Fife cousins might she, or is it Fife or Flight? I get, I'm getting them confused with Sebastian Flight. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, um, Fife. It's a very, very similar feel. Yeah, yes, exactly. Bride's yes. heady sort of feel yes, to it. Yes, yes. Um, but anyway, you're wondering which of these Fife cousins is she going to ultimately become romantically entangled with? Because you can see how it's going to play out and it could go any number of ways. Absolutely, for sure. And soon enough, though, these idyllic childhood summers are over and the cousins stop coming. Then at the very beginning of part two, there's this passage I absolutely loved. Judith finds out that the fifes are returning. They could show up at any time. And she goes down to the river for a skinny dip. It's nighttime. And like all of the descriptions of nature, I thought this was just brimming with beauty and joy and sensuality. She dared not venture beyond the garden for fear of encountering them unexpectedly. Only the dark was safe, and night after sleepless night, she jumped out of the kitchen window into the garden and crossed the lawn's pattern of long tree shadows, sharp cut upon the blank moon-blanched level of the grass. All the colors were drained away. Only the white spring flowers in the border shone up with a glimmer as of phosphorus, and the budding treetops were picked out line by cold line in a thin and silvery wash of light. She went dancingly down the garden, feeling moon-changed, powerful and elated, and paused at the river's edge. The water shone mildly as it flowed. She scanned it up and down. It was deserted utterly. It was hers alone. She took off her few clothes and stepped in, dipping rapidly, and the water slipped over her breasts, round her shoulders, covering all her body. The chill water wounded her. Her breath came shudderingly in great gasps, but after a moment, she started to swim vigorously downstream. It was exquisite joy to be naked in the water's sharp clasp. In comparison, the happiness of swimming in a bathing suit was vulgar and contemptible. To swim by moonlight alone was a sacred and passionate mystery. The water was in love with her body. She gave herself to it with reluctance, and it embraced her bitterly. She endured it. Soon, she desired it. She was in love with it. 
Gradually, its harshness was appeased, and it held her and caressed her gently in her motion. Intense, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I I was going to say, I'm glad you chose that um, little passage because I think it perfectly kind of summarizes what this book is about in some ways. You know, we talked about how brilliant she is at writing this sort of evocative, you know, descriptions of nature. Um, And you see how her writing is so sensual here. And it seems perfect because the book is basically about a young woman's sexual awakening. Mm-hmm. In a lot of ways, right? It is. It's very sensual. It's very, it's actually quite erotic in a not particularly explicit way, but there's a real eroticism to quite a lot of the moments in the deck. And and interestingly, probably a lot of the ones that, a lot of the moments where Judith is alone, it's not necessarily eroticism with other partners. It's about her discovering her own sort of sensuality, her own beauty, her own eroticism. And I, I love that. I find that incredibly moving, I think. It made me want to go skinny dipping. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in England. That would be one of your reveries, Kim, because I can't imagine you actually really doing it. But maybe, I don't know. <laughs> Dare me. I'm going to a lake in a couple of weeks. Prove it on Instagram, anyway. girl. <laughs> so anyway, as part two continues, Judith, she's still seeing the newly returned Fife cousins periodically. And although as a child, she had been in love with the cousin named Charlie, he has tragically died in the first war. So now Judith realizes she has fallen hopelessly in love with Roddy, one of the other boys. I think Layman is really gifted at writing flirtatious scenes. And so I was into this romance. What did you think of Roddy and Judith's interaction, Lucy? Yeah, she's completely and utterly head over heels in love with him. But I think what I like is it's so hard to work out what he feels for her. He blows hot and cold. You know, one minute he's quite attentive to her. The next he seems completely disinterested. And I'm always impressed by the way that Lehman writes this confusion so believably. Um, it's done so well in a sense because we have nothing but Judith's own impressions to go on. We're never inside Roddy's head, so we never really kind of get a sense of what's going on with him. And Judith's own interpretation of the interactions uh, are sort of, you know, unreliable to say the least. But I think it's worth pointing out that although she has got a very active imagination, she's not a fool. She knows the difference between dreams and reality. In fact, if anything, she's so acutely aware that she's got this kind of very wild fantasy life. She can't begin to comprehend that some of the five cousins, you know, might have their own fantasies about her. But that's also getting ahead of ourselves a little bit here. So... Yeah, it's interesting. I think that if I had read this when I was younger, I probably would have bought into the Roddy romance maybe a little bit more. Um, Reading it from my perspective, I think I was a little more like, oh, red flag, red flag. (laughs) She feels they're destined to be Mm -hmm. together. So when you feel that, that it's like written in the stars, Mm -hmm. she will take any little sign As as a signal that this is on, right? Absolutely. So in part three, Judith goes off to Girton College. That's an all-girls school at Cambridge University. And there she meets another character who takes an almost mythical status in her heart, a young woman named Jennifer. We understand right off the bat that this person is going to be somebody very special in Judith's life. Lucy, would you care to read from the first scene in which Jennifer appears? Yes. So this is Judith. Um, This is from Judith's point of view. She sat at the wrong table in the dining hall on her first night at college. And so she's looking across the dining hall to the table where the other freshers are, where she should be sat. That was where she should be humbly sitting among those quieter heads right at the end. There was a light there flashing about. The tail of her eye had already caught it several times. She looked more closely. It was somebody's fair head, 
so fiercely alive that it seemed delicately to light the air around it, a vivacious, emphatic head, turning and nodding, below it a white neck and shoulder, generously modelled, leaning across the table. Then the face came round suddenly, all curves, the wide mouth laughing, warm-coloured. It made you think of warm fruit, peaches and nectarines mellowed in the sun. It seemed to look at Judith with sudden eager attention and then to smile. The eyes were meeting her own, inquiring deeply. Who's that? said Judith excitedly, forgetful of her position. Oh, one of the freshers, I don't know her name. Her name, her very name would be sure to have the sun on it. It's like Maria <laughs> from West Side Story. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> um, really quickly, I want to uh, refer our listeners back to the episode we did on Amy Levy with Ann Kennedy mm-hmm. Smith, because we talked a lot in that episode about Newnham College, which is also at Cambridge. So Girton was the other all-female college. And um, I think Layman's description of what life was like there in the 1930s was really interesting. I just loved getting into that whole boarding school element and seeing the girls all together and they're drinking hot cocoa, you know, in the evenings and things like that. But getting back to Jennifer, we know that this book was considered scandalous in its day. You hear teases about the book, like, oh, it's got lesbians in it, you know? And really the the prospect didn't quite shock me because it seems like Male homosexual encounters at universities were kind of prevalent in this era. And I'm thinking back to Brideshead Revisited, for example. So I was just like, oh, okay, here we go. You know, they're going to fall in love or whatever. Layman leaves it slightly nebulous in the book. But I will say that the two women are quite, quite close. And it's at least an intense infatuation. Lucy, what do you think we should make of this relationship between Judith and Jennifer in the book? Well, there are definite moments that do seem to imply that they're more than just good friends, as it were. Um, There's a particularly famous moment in the book, a line that's often quoted. They're both bathing, skinny dipping again together on an early summer's day in the River Cam. And Judith looks longingly and lovingly at Jennifer's kind of beautiful naked body as she stands on the bank. And she says, glorious, glorious pagan that I adore, whispered the voice in Judith that could never speak out. Mm-hmm. And so that seems a fairly clear um, indication of some sort of same-sex desire. I mean, this line alone has spawned myriad academic papers on the hidden lesbianism in Dusty Answer, many of which I, I remember reading back in the day. And there is a convincing argument to be made for it. But I don't know, for me, I think Jennifer's gender has never really been here or there. I mean, she's absolutely another love object in this novel. But Judith is just bouncing from love object to love object as she goes through. You know, she's falling in love left, right and centre. Whether she's actually sexually attracted to Jennifer seems of little consequence. And I don't know. I think we also need to think about the context of the era you're talking about. I think these sort of passions and crushes were very typical of the era. A lot of, you know, young women, whether they were at school or at university, had them. But I don't know. I think a more fruitful way of thinking about it might be just that there's romance in the air throughout this entire book. Um, So I'm not saying there isn't a sexual element to the relationship, but ultimately they don't have an explicit sexual encounter. And I think we maybe need to trust Lehman herself on this point because she was quite shocked when readers wrote to her and complained about the lesbian romance in the book. You know, she had no idea that it was going to be read like this or that's what she claimed. Um, This is a very long winded way of saying I'm not going to come down on it one (laughs) side or the other. I think we also need to think about the fact that Judith hasn't really had many attachments at all. She hasn't had many friendships, let alone sexual encounters. Everything about this is new to her. Like falling in love with people is, it seems to be what she's doing now, right? 
Yeah. I mean, before knowing about Lehman's life, it felt to me definitely like the girls were having a love affair that was passionate, even if it was mostly platonic. I mean, the hairbrushing scenes were pretty um, intense. Um, But as you said, Lehman later insisted the characters in the book were all completely invented, you know, but she did attend Girton College. Considering it was an all-female college, it seems surprising she would be so out of touch with lesbianism that her husband apparently had to explain it to her. I don't know if that's true. But what, if anything, about her time at Girton might parallel Lehman's real-life experiences? Well, she certainly experienced a very close, intoxicating friendship um, with a fellow student, Griselle Buchanan. I think Lehman described um, their relationship as a a very emotional friendship and Griselle herself as a temptation to everyone, like a particularly heady wine, which, you know, reading between the lines again, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But this was also the period in Lehman's life in which she experienced her first um, heterosexual heartbreak. So she had a short-lived romance with a young man called David Keswick. And at the very end of her time at Cambridge, they went to a ball together one evening and danced together all night. And they'd been flirting for quite a long time before this. And he kissed her rather passionately. And because she was such an innocent she sort of took this as a proposal of marriage and said to him, you know, write to me, write to me. He disappears off into the night. And then she finds out that he's actually engaged to somebody else. And she's heartbroken by this, you know, and this experience obviously feeds directly into then what happens between Judith and Roddy in the novel. Yeah. Was it really just a kiss? Um, Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's true. So um, Rosamond Lehman was considered a great beauty of her day. Apparently, T.S. Eliot said she was the most beautiful woman he'd ever seen. So this is something she recalled him saying. So who knows if that's true, but she does look really Hollywood gorgeous in the photos that we saw of her online. And she did have a lot of men throwing themselves at her. If anybody out there is contemplating, um, especially in this COVID era, just like foregoing hair dye and letting your hair go its natural shade, she began to have her hair turn silver when she was very, very young, like in her early 20s. And by her mid 40s, her hair was completely white. That was one of her, you know, signature features of her beauty, basically, was this shock of white hair. So if you need any inspiration for embracing your gray, Rosamond Lehman is your girl. (laughs) So back to the Girton years, while she was at college, Lehman felt hopeless about finding her soulmate in the aftermath of World War I. And she even says, as all the young men have been killed, I shall never marry. She remembered thinking that. Right. And then it turns out a shortage of men was never really her problem. Um, Instead, it was maybe the opposite. Like her novel's heroine, Lehman was an incurable romantic, often to her own detriment. And we'll get to all that shortly. But first, let's get back to the novel. We have Judith connected at the hip to Jennifer, but I think we should also point out this other student at Girton, a character named Mabel. She's kind of annoying. She's a not very attractive hanger on whom Judith just finds to be a complete bore. She does not want to be saddled with this girl. Um, so she's torn between like trying to be polite, but also being like, I don't want you hanging out with me. And I think there actually was a version of this young woman in Lehman's own experience at Girton. Um, but what I like about her inclusion in the novel is that it helps us see Judith's petty side shine through. You know, she can be a mean girl. What do you think, Lucy? I think uh, Judith is in no way perfect. Um, In fact, by the end of the novel, I think most of the characters that she's been close to at one time or other have had to learn this about her in quite a hard way. 
you know, she gets her heart broken, but she breaks hearts too. And she's also very careless with other people's feelings in the way that I think, you know, probably a lot of us can be when we're young and uh, don't think things through. For sure. Um, after a heady two-year romance or a very intense friendship, however you choose to see it with Jennifer, their relationship completely falls apart. Judith is really shaken up by all this, but still in the back of her head, she has Roddy on the brain. And this takes us to part four of the book when they eventually meet up again. And it is on, or at least it seems to be on from Judith's point of view, to the extent that she allows Roddy to make love to her one night under a tree by the river's edge. And the next morning, she writes him this blissful letter talking about how they're going to be together forever now. And his response is basically... I'm afraid you misunderstood me. It's gut-wrenching. Even though you can see it coming, it's absolutely (laughs) gut-wrenching. Yeah, it's brutal. (laughs) Um, This in-person confrontation that they eventually have later that day is particularly agonizing. Lucy, how about you read a small part of that exchange to kind of help drive home the misery? Yeah, the whole episode is unbearably awkward. Um, He behaves like quite a thoughtless cad, but I think it's her wide-eyed innocence that's sort of so heartbreaking. I said earlier that she's not foolish, and she really isn't, but she is naive. And I think what's so kind of torturous about this is we watch in real time as it sort of dawns on her just how unworldly she is. So Roddy says, I'm afraid you've misunderstood me. Yes, I've misunderstood you. You see, this sort of thing has never happened to me before, and I thought... When a person said, why did you say, I didn't know people said that without meaning it. I suppose we must mean different things by it. That's what it is. Well, her voice was terrible, a little panting whine. I don't know what you mean. Probably that was true. He'd forgotten that he'd ever said, I love you. She could not remind him, for in any case, he would not be affected. What were three little words? And after all, she'd probably more or less forced him to say them. She'd wanted to hear them so much. She'd driven him to say them. Yes, he had groaned and quickly repeated them to keep her quiet, to stop her mouth so he could go on kissing her. She said, but why, Roddy? Why did you take me out? Behave as you did. Kiss me so, so... I don't understand why you bothered. Why you seemed... He was silent. Oh, God, if only he would wound and wound with clean thrusts of truth instead of standing there, mute, deaf. Oh, Oh so she, she is so filled with shame. And at the same time, she's trying to keep her dignity. I think the roller coaster of emotions she endures really throughout the book is quite relatable to any woman who, you know, has lived to a certain age. I just kept thinking how much I could have used this book when I was in my 20s and pining away over total jerks. I think, you know, it's just a reminder that love makes idiots of us all. Yeah, I could have definitely been called naive a few times. And have been. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that was absolutely painful. It's taken me a minute to recover. <laughs> you can totally understand why the book resonated with women, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think this is what the readers felt. I mean, Lehman was inundated with letters from female fans telling her that this is my story. Um, that there were people who wrote to her to vent their revulsion to Before consigning your book to the flames, wrote one woman who signed herself the mother of six, I would wish to inform you of my disgust that anyone should pen such filth, especially a miss. 
you know, you get two ends of the spectrum there. Yes. Um, and I think, you know, like you two, I absolutely identified with these parts. You know, like you said earlier, we've all experienced heartbreak that at the time feels as traumatic as this does. And Lehman's so brilliant at pinpointing that on the page. Um, but I think perhaps also more so than that element of the book, the thing I find most relatable and, and sort of always have is Judith's longing to be seen by the cousins in that first section when she realizes they're returning to the house next door for the first time. And her immediate reaction is a strange mixture of excitement and absolute fear. She's distinctly afraid that they won't remember her. If I may just quote briefly, uh, she knew that anyway, they would not remember so meticulously, so achingly as herself. People never did remember her so hard as she remembered them. And these lines, I mean, have stayed with me ever since I first read the book. Um, these cousins are so important to her and she's so utterly preoccupied by the fear that they might just not think of her with the sort of same affection and magnitude that she does. And I think, you know, this is what elevates the novel, what makes it to me more than just an evocative tale of first love, which it is and beautifully done. But by the end of the book, we see that the tables have turned and that Judith herself and the reader comes to finally understand that she has played a really large role in the Fife's fantasy worlds, you know, as large as they've played in hers, but she just doesn't see it for such a long time. You had mentioned that you read this book when you were an undergrad. Mm. So you were like early 20s, basically, yeah. kind of Judith's age. And I wonder if I would have read it somehow differently in my 20s as I'm now reading it in my 40s. I would have enjoyed it equally both ways, but I think in a very different way. And I'm wondering if like reading it again now as you're a bit older has changed your perspective on it. Yeah, I think I must have been, I was actually quite frightened to go back to it again because it had made such a visceral impression on me first time around. I was a bit worried that I'd go back to it for this. I hadn't read it since I first read it. I just knew I loved it. And I was worried that it would be sort of spoiled as an older woman going back to it now. But I still found it remarkably poignant, I think. And maybe that is because I still have the recollection of reading it first time round. But I think that when I first read it, it, it definitely captured so many feelings. You know, the first love, this sense of these friendships, these in incredibly kind of important friendships and relationships that you have with people, whether they're sexual or platonic, and the way that they become these huge parts of your life and that fear that maybe they don't think the same way about you. And I can't quite get over how well Lehman does that in this novel. Yeah. And the self-awareness too of even when she's talking to Roddy, she wants him to say that he loves her, but she doesn't want him to say it if it isn't true. And she gets what's going on. And I thought that was so powerful too. And it gives it that complexity and that added layer that just makes it that much more intense. It's like an elegy to youth. It's taking you back to this dreamy place when you were younger. And I think no matter what age you are when you're reading it, it transports you back to that time period. Yes, absolutely. So we don't want to give away too much of the rest of the book, but after being used and tossed away by Roddy, Judith becomes a shell of the person she once was, and her involvement with the rest of the cousins becomes complicated as a result. Yeah, and then Layman's real love life, as we said, was as up and down as Judith's, even more so, in fact. So in the midst of her disastrous first marriage to a guy who was a total jerk, she fell madly in love with a man who would become her second husband and with whom she'd have two children. But the bloom fell off that rose. And then she wound up taking up with the very married Cecil Day-Lewis, who is the father of actor Daniel Day-Lewis. And he was probably the greatest love of her life. But 
she was his mistress. And for almost a decade, they were together until he ditched her for a younger woman. And that was just devastating to her. She never quite recovered. And oddly enough, she even tried to form an alliance with Cecil's first wife, the woman that she stole him from. She kind of like met up with her and was like, hey, he's now dating this third woman. Do you and I want to sort of like team up and make sure that doesn't happen? And weirdly, the wife was sort of like on board with it. But it, it got a little complicated, but suffice to say, it was all a little bit pathetic. She had some briefer affairs with other men, including James Bond author Ian Fleming. Uh, and she even took one of her son's friends for a lover. He was 30 years younger than her at the time. So it goes on and on reading about her romantic exploits. And you sort of start to lose count of the number of lovers she had throughout her life. And reading about it all, I just kept thinking, what are you doing? Like, oh my gosh, just stop. She wanted to keep falling in love. It seems like she was in love with the idea of love. What do you think, Lucy? Yeah, I think absolutely. Like you say, none of her marriages or affairs lasted. Um, nevertheless, they were grand romances at the time, and she gave everything to each of them in turn. I also think her beauty, which you mentioned earlier, played quite a huge role in this. She clearly inspired grand passion in many men, and she responded to this passion. She wanted to be desired. She loved being desired by the men. And in the biography, Selena Hastings explains that even when Lehman was quite an elderly woman, long after she'd lost her figure and become quite stout um, and her youthful allure had left her, she still behaved as if she was the great beauty in the room always. And she still expected men to fall at her feet. And although you could argue there's something rather sort of sad and tragic about this sort of refusal to accept reality, another part of me thinks kind of, you go, girl. Like, yes. why not? You know? <laughs> Absolutely. I, I think it's kind of admirable. It suggests yeah. an impressive degree of self-worth over yes. those years that you could still act like you are this incredible beauty when you're actually quite an old, <laughs> stout woman. That's that Isn't that what we're all supposed to be trying to do? <laughs> I yeah. Don't I yeah. Don't know. Yeah. So we know that Lehman hung out with the Bloomsbury set in the 1930s, including Virginia and Leonard Wolf. She was acquainted with so many illustrious writers of her day, including Elizabeth Bowen, Dylan Thomas, T.S. Eliot, Somerset Maugham, Noel Coward, Christopher Isherwood, Carson McCullers, Graham Greene, and countless more. Catch your breath. Catch your breath. Yeah, I know. Seriously. It's surprising then that she sort of fell off the radar for many people. As I mentioned at the beginning, Amy and I had never read her. Any ideas about why she's maybe not as remembered or as read as she should be? Or is that just something here in the States? Um, yeah, I think it's a bit of both. I mean, I think, you know, obviously there's plenty of books or, uh, you know, bestsellers that were once huge that kind of fall out the radar as times change. And just because she was a bestseller in the 20s doesn't mean that she was going to be read as much in the 60s. But I also always wonder if it's something to do with her reputation as a romance novelist. Uh, there's definitely some snobbery going on there, I think. I mean, she certainly wrote about love. She wrote about romance. There's no question about that. But if she was described to me as only a romance novelist, I might very well not be interested in picking her work up. So, you know, I can be a snob as much as the next person. Um, so I think that definitely has something to do with it. But, you know, she does write about these topics, but she also writes about them in such a sort of truthful and beautiful way, and also in a very innovative way. Um, you mentioned the Bloomsbury connection, but like Wolf, she uses stream of consciousness technique. You know, she moves between interiority and exterior explication, sometimes in the space of a single paragraph, in such a kind of elegant and effortless way. 
Yet today, I think I'd be willing to bet that she's still mostly read for her subject matter, not for her style, which I think is a bit of a travesty. I'm going to acknowledge as well that she is better known here in the UK. She was the success story of the Virago modern classics in the 1980s. So when they were first launched as a series, um, they did two of her books, Invitation to the Waltz and The Weather in the Streets in 1981. And both of these, they each sold 20,000 copies, which is a huge amount. And that was in the space of sort of three years only. I mean, any author would be happy to sell 20,000 copies, let alone as a reprint late in life. And she became then a sort of literary celebrity all over again. So she is known, but I think she has a certain reputation. Let's put it that way. So you mentioned her other novels. I think she wrote eight in total, as well as some short story collections and an autobiography. Um, I know some of her other books are considered to be even better than Dusty Answer, critically. Have you read anything else by her? Or are there any other um, novels she's written that you would like to read to check out? Yeah, I must admit that when I first read Dusty Answer and I fell for her, I fell so hard, I immediately went out and bought everything else she'd ever written and just read it, <laughs> love it. one by one through them. I was completely um, enamored. And uh, I will say... I. I do love Dusty Answer. I think it's a beautiful book. I think my favourite of hers is The Weather in the Streets, um, a novel that she wrote a bit later. And that is a book that, unlike Dusty Answer, I actually have read on multiple occasions. It is one of those books that I sort of come back to when I need a comfort read. And I mean that in the broadest sense of the term. It's not a particularly comforting novel in terms of, so it's, an, it's another story of a kind of doomed love. This time, Our heroine is Olivia Curtis. Uh, She's a woman in her late 20s. She's living sort of on the bohemian fringes of London in the 1930s. She's separated from her husband and she embarks on a affair with a married man named Rollo, who grew up in a house, a sort of wealthier family near hers in the countryside. So there are some sort of similar elements with um, Dusty Answer there. And Invitation to the Waltz is the sort of precursor to um, the weather in the streets, it tells the story of Olivia Curtis's childhood and the ball at which she first met Rollo. And I think those two, my favourite is weather in the streets, but I think those two are often seen as a sort of pinnacle of Lehman's work. So if anyone was looking to read something else after this, I would say go and read those two. Ooh, that would be I'm me. do that, yeah. And I love the idea of you just becoming full on obsessed. Because yeah. I do that too, where I just get in a zone and yeah. I'm like, I am devouring it all right yeah. now. Um, okay, so apparently Lehman turned down an offer for the film rights to Dusty Answer. Her second husband convinced her it was a bad idea, which I think that was a bad idea. But, <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> but uh, a movie was going to be made of another one of her novels, The Ballad and the Source, but then that didn't come to pass, as so often happens with Hollywood. A few of her other books did get adapted. Her novel, The Echoing Grove, became a 2002 film called The Heart of Me, starring Paul Bettany and Helena Bonham Carter. And then The Weather in the Streets, which you mentioned, was made into an 80s TV movie starring Joanna Lumley and Michael York. So maybe those are worth checking out. I don't know if you've seen those, Lucy, but listeners, give us a shout out if anybody has seen that and if they're worth watching. I can't believe I haven't seen The Heart of Me because... Helena Bonham Carter and Paul. It sounds Bettany, like I know it sounds I don't like know how I Alley. That. Yeah. yeah. I've seen that. I did actually quite like it. I went to try and find it again recently to rewatch for this as research. Um and uh, unfortunately it's not available here in the UK at the moment, so mm. I don't know what's happened to it. But I, I remember thinking it was quite well done. That's another beautiful novel. I'd recommend them all, but you know, yeah. 
Great. No, no, that's fantastic. I, I will watch that too. Maybe we'll have an online viewing for that, Amy. If um, we can find it. If we yeah. can find it. Yeah. If it's available here. Uh, what do we think of uh, Dusty Answer film or miniseries? Would you want to see it? I, I would. What do you What do you all think? I'm going to kind of burst the bubble slightly and say I'm not sure if it would ever be quite as poignant as the book, only because I think the book is, for me, so much of the novel lies in the sort of shifting perspectives. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the way that I think, like I mentioned earlier, Judith is a sort of unreliable narrator, not that she's trying to hide things, but... Um, it's only at the very end of the novel that we're sort of able to see her in this in the way that others see her as this beautiful, accomplished, desirable object. Mm-hmm. Um, and she sees herself as, as something so different to that throughout. And I think that revelation is so important to the story. I don't know how you would do that in the film. It would be very obvious that she is beautiful and accomplished throughout. You know, you'd have to have a wonderful actress playing her. So. A makeover moment. No. Yeah, it doesn't. I mean, it, it, that's the thing. It's, it is a sort of makeover novel, but it yeah. doesn't, you know, you don't, the reveal is in in the words on the page. Yeah, more subtle. The, the yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I think you'd also need a director and cinematographer who could capture the glory of that natural description. Mm, yeah. You know, the, 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 laying on the lawn smoking cigarettes languidly you know along the Thames that dreamscape kind of thing and also that first section is so fragmentary Mm -hmm. and I think that's quite I mean you know we take that for granted in in writing today literary fiction but again I think it was relatively innovative for the time it was written these fragments of, of recollections and memories of her childhood to put that on the screen would be it might be hard to do it I'm sure somebody could do it but it wouldn't necessarily be straightforward right Speaking of fragmented, I guess, um, Lehman got really into mysticism and the paranormal later in her life after the tragic death of her daughter, Sally, who died unexpectedly in her 20s. I think it was probably a coping mechanism, but with the help of psychics, she claimed to be able to speak with Sally, among other people, from the beyond, including her old pal, Virginia Woolf. Her friends and family were naturally skeptical and very concerned, you know, thinking that she had a break from reality. Yeah, I don't know. The fact uh, that she would commune with spirits almost seems a bit fitting when you think of how haunting and mystical some of Dusty Answer is. At any rate, it did bring her a lot of solace and comfort before her ultimate death in 1990. What do you think Dusty Answer offers uh, today's readers, Lucy? What makes it worth reading or relevant now? Well, I think I'm going to be annoyingly argumentative and suggest that I'm always wary of things being worth reading because they're relevant. I think Dusty Answer is worth reading because it's, you know, the kind of book that consumes you like a fever dream, I think, while you read it. It's worth it for that alone. Um, However, I think, you know, we've all mentioned that our own experiences of kind of young love resonate in Judith's experiences. And so, it seems that it doesn't matter about the passing of time. The era might be different. You know, the context might be very different, but we've all experienced heartbreak and young love. And also, ultimately, it is a novel about the very painful process of growing up. And so anyone who's experienced that at any point, I think, can, can also relate. I would add, too, that the natural beauty when you're stuck inside in a city uh, it's palpable, that mm. feeling of nature and being outside in that. And I just found myself letting myself go into that world as I was reading it. And it, it felt very visceral. Escapism. Yeah. Yeah. It's perfect for that. 
And now I'm definitely interested in going to read some more works by Rosamond Lehman. And as always, Lucy, I'll be following your recovered column for other buried classics like this that we can all check out. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been such a pleasure. We can't thank you enough. We were both jumping up and down, thrilled when you said yes. So Oh, no, it's been my pleasure entirely. I've had a have a great time being able to chat about this. And also I owe you a great debt of thanks because I think, like I said, I don't think I would have gone back to this novel if I hadn't had an impetus like this to go and, and read it. And it has been pure pleasure to kind of slip back into Judith's life again. So thank you both so much. I love the podcast, so it's a real pleasure to be on it. Brilliant. Oh, thank you. So that's all for today's podcast. We hope you share today's book recommendation with all your friends. Yes, and while you're at it, point them in the direction of our podcast and Lucy's podcast for Virago. It's called Our Shelves. And speaking of podcasts, Amy, can you believe it's almost been one year since we launched Lost Ladies of Lit? (laughs) I know, that's crazy. It's so hard to believe that. Actually, time flies when you're reading great books and having fun, right? Yep, that's true. It's been a blast. So anyway, next week, we are going to look back at all of the bloopers and best of moments from the past 12 months. It's going to be a lot of fun. And also, just thank you to everyone who has made this podcast part of their weekly routine. We're so thrilled to have you all along for the ride. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Until next week, bye, everyone. Our theme song was written and performed by Jenny Malone, and our logo was designed by Harriet Grant. Lost Ladies of Lit is produced by Kim Askew and Amy Helms. 